Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the steppes of Central Asia, in a remote setting near the border between Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, is a river called the Talas. In July 751, it was the site of a battle between the forces of the Abbasid Caliphate and the Tong Dynasty. It was the only confrontation ever to take place between Arab and Chinese armies. The Arabs won, but Talas marks the point where the Islamic Empire halted its march eastward and where the Chinese stopped their expansion to the west. It was a turning point in the global balance of power. In the years following the battle, Islam became the dominant religion from the Mediterranean to the Himalayas. But it was also a moment of great cultural exchange. According to tradition, paper was first introduced into the West by Chinese prisoners of war captured by the Arabs. With me to discuss the Battle of Talas are Hugh Kennedy, Professor of Arabic at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, Hilda de Viet, Professor of Chinese History at Leiden University, and Michelle Huckelman, British Academy Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of History at King's College London. Hugh Kennedy, the background to the Battle of Talas is the Arab conquest that began immediately after the death of Muhammad in 632. Why did these conquests start and how were they carried out? The Arab, con- <laughs> the Arab conquest began immediately after the Prophet's death and uh, the Arab Muslim armies were extremely effective at conquering the ancient empires of the Byzantines in the west and the Sasanians in the east. By around 650, the whole of what is modern Iran was effectively under Muslim rule. And then, going east, there was a pause, because beyond the frontiers of modern Iran into what is now uh, Turkmenistan and uh, Uzbekistan, they came across a a country which was not a united empire that could easily be conquered, but was rather dominated by a series of, or group of princes, mostly of Iranian origin, often living in remote mountain castles, who've put up a fierce and prolonged resistance to the Arab advances. It was also a land with a strong commercial tradition. A people called the Sogdians, who spoke an Iranian language, had for many generations at least established trading links with China far to the east. And certainly these economic considerations did spur on the Arab Muslims though there were religious motivations and so on as well in their conquest, uh, the idea of, as it were, profiting from and taking advantage of these commercial links certainly pulled them further east in, in that direction. It was an extraordinary dynamic, wasn't it, for that time? They seemed to come... Nobody comes out of nowhere, but it seemed as if they came out of nowhere. And then they're, they're the fastest-moving, uh, almost irresistible force in a great part of the world. Well, can you tell us what the extent of Arab, Arab power was in the middle of the 8th century, just when, we, when our battle takes place? Well, this was a period when the uh, Umayyad dynasty, up till 750 at least, the Umayyad dynasty, based in Damascus, Uh, ruled over, in one way or another, the whole of the Muslim world. So we're talking from Spain and Portugal and Morocco in the west right through to the borders of of Uzbekistan and what used to be Soviet Central Asia in the east and in the southeast, Sindh, the the southern part of uh, modern Pakistan and, of course, all the countries in between. Uh, and the uh, the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, but not the Byzantine Empire, not modern Turkey, which was then ruled by the Byzantines from Constantinople. How did they manage to do it so quickly and so effectively? What was that? Did they were they technologically ahead of everybody else? Were they more numerous? What was going on? 
No, neither of those explanations seems to hold much water. There's no evidence that they were technologically more advanced or, or indeed they're more numerous. It seems to have been a question of exhaustion, if you like, of the, the two great powers that had previously dominated this area, the Byzantines and the Sasanians, and also, uh, I think, leadership, uh, an idea, uh, skilled leadership in, 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 in warfare and an ideology that encouraged them to think of the whole world as their... Uh, potential area of, of, of rule and so on, not to be confined by existing national borders or imperial borders uh, or whatever. And very quick moving. This was an army that didn't have supply trains. It didn't have huge numbers of ox wagons to carry stuff and so on. They moved very quickly on their horses with their uh, supplies around them. They took what they could from the surrounding countryside. And these were hardy, tough Bedouin people who were used to being brought up in the deserts of Arabia. They didn't need much to keep going. Hilda de Viet, on the other side of the Battle of Talas was the Chinese, the Tong dynasty. Who were they and what was the state of their empire in the middle of the 8th century? Tang was the name of the dynasty chosen by uh, Li Yuan. Li Yuan was a military commander of the preceding Sui dynasty. He uh, hailed from a family of uh, people who had held high positions in politics, but also in the military uh, for generations. And this meant that he and his sons were actively involved first in reuniting the Chinese territories, which had been thrown into civil war since the early 600s, and then later also in establishing the foundations for the creation of an empire that would be one of the largest in, in Chinese history and certainly the largest until that point in, in Chinese history. So by the mid-8th century, uh, the Chinese, uh, the Tang Empire, were one of the major players in Eurasia. Uh, they had been able by the uh, late 7th century to extend their power as far as contemporary Afghanistan. This is the furthest a Chinese power would, would ever go. Um, they faced challenges, and this is the second uh, side to the story, that um, they were not the only player. We've already heard that the Umayyad, the Abbasids, uh, were a major player, uh, but there were many others as well. So the Chinese were uh, surrounded by strong forces uh, in pretty much every direction. In the east, there were the Koreans. In the north, there were the Khitan, but also Turkish empires. In the uh, west, there were Tibetan forces, Uyghur forces, another uh, Turkish uh, confederation. And to the south, there was a kingdom called the, Nan, the Nanjiao. Um, the Tang had won many battles, but they had also lost quite a few. So by the mid-8th century, uh, the then reigning uh, Xuanzong Emperor could be proud of such a large empire, uh, but it was also clear that the situation was always unstable. Uh, they, were the, uh, they were extremely civilised, weren't they, at that time, the Chinese, in, in terms of their, their, their culture? They had established uh, traditions for ruling large states long ago. So in that sense, yes, there, there was uh, an apparatus that they could go back to. But at the same time, it's important to keep in mind that perhaps unlike uh, later Chinese dynasties that were proud of being ethnically Han, uh, that was not the case for the, uh, the Li family. Uh, stories vary, but um, they were part of a northern aristocracy which had for generations intermarried with Turkic and Mongolic peoples. The reason why that matters is that it meant that they shared a political and military culture with those people. So in, in cultural terms, the distance between the Tang rulers and Turkic and Mongolic rulers may not have been as far as it might seem to us today. The military valor was important for that family just as it was across the border. 
Can you give us a brief notion, a notion of the territory between these two great empires? What was going on there? Okay, and the geography... Central Asia, let's call it. Yes. yes. Uh, the geography really matters here. In order to understand the politics, it's, it's good to get a sense of you know, what the territory, the lay of the land uh, was like. So say if you were a, a Tang merchant or a soldier, and you had to travel from the west of uh, the, the Tang Empire all the way to where the Abbasids uh, had come, uh, you would first go through an area that we now call the Kansu Corridor. That's a, a strip that separates the uh, Gobi Desert. It's an area uh, where you can't really go through uh, to the north. And then to the south, you have the Qinghai Mountains, also uh, 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 an area that's not easy to cross through. Um, for In that area, there had been Turkish Tangut uh, peoples who were able to set up strong confederacies. Those, they, they, were, they were forced to deal with uh, for the tongue. Once you'd gone through that area, uh, roughly 600 miles or so, you would reach the Taklamakan Desert, Another place that's not easy uh, to cross. Uh, but you could get around it. Uh, to the north, there was a series of oasis cities. Um, to the south, similarly, there were uh, oasis cities that had for centuries uh, been trading with the Sorgians that you already referred to. Uh, these were small independent city-states, but the Chinese had been uh, uh, trying to extend their power into into that area. To the north and south of, of the Taklamakan doesn't were, were again mountains. At the very end, to the west, these mountains came together into what uh, is, is now called the Pamir Mountains. Once you cross that last obstacle, you would reach uh, the Abbasids. Um, can I, M- Michelle, uh, Michelle uh, Huckleman, how much... Con- contact had there been between the Chinese and the Arabs before 751? Well, the Chinese had been interested in what um, would generically be um, come to known as the Western regions, or Xi Yu in, in, in Chinese sources, from a very early stage. Um, and um, the way the Chinese um, um, collected information on um, these so-called Western regions, um, the first um, kind of, of um, sources came to the Chinese by way of reconnaissance missions um, um, the um, military sent into the Western regions. The earliest one dates um, to around the year 100 BC, um, when a Chinese general named Zhang Qian was sent on a mission by um, the then reigning emperor Han Wu Di um, to um, f- find um, the source of the so-called uh, blood-sweating um, um, treasure horses um, of Fergana. Fergana, a name that um, plays an important role in um, the events that led to the Battle of Talas, actually, later on. Um, we then have um, the next um, very well-known um, reconnaissance mission um, around the year 60, 70 AD, um, when um, a petty lieutenant named Gan Ying um, was sent by um, the governor of um, the then Chinese-ruled um, eastern regions of um, modern Xinjiang. Um, and he supposedly um, reached I- either the Euphrates and Tigris region or um, even the eastern Mediterranean. We're not entirely sure because the term that he used um, for uh, um, a sea um, in um, the west is not very clear. So are we talking about a strategy of investigation over those centuries? We're, we're certainly talking about a strategy of investigation um, from a very early stage, um, from the um, first large empire of uh, the Han dynasty. How much uh, we've heard quite a bit about we've heard how mu- about Central Asia. How much involvement did the Chinese have in in Central Asia? 
That's that's a very good question. Um, up up to the tongue, it's um, actually quite difficult um, to ascertain how much involvement they had with um, East uh, with Western Asia. Um, because um, uh, historical accounts about that period are either contradictory or incomplete. Um, so we um, have, as I was um, 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 uh, laying out um, before, um, we have historical accounts of these um, uh, Western regions in um, um, the so-called dynastic histories um, from a very early stage. And um, the impression these sources give us is that the Chinese didn't actually know very much about these regions. So there was not much direct interaction between um, the Eastern Mediterranean or Western Asia and East Asia at that particular time. It was more probably um, a way, uh, the the same way the Silk Road trade went um, through several stages on the road that um, information traveled in uh, to both directions. Do you feel at the time, and I'll ask Sam if you're Kennedy about the Arabs, do you feel that the Chinese were just start pushing west and west and west until they were stopped, or they didn't think they would be stopped? Was it just was it was it going to be a continuous process? Were they on the march, in other words, to keep going before this Talus battle? In the Tang, certainly yes. They yeah. were they were pushing they were pushing uh, westwards, certainly yeah. And what about you, Hugh Kennedy? What about the Arabs? Are they pushing eastwards as resolutely? Ideologically, this idea of pushing and and incorporating the whole of the known world into Islamic rule was certainly in the background. But in practice, Islamic conquest in Central Asia sort of ran out of steam where the settled lands end. They were Mm. keen in possessing the last oases in the northeast, the last fertile river valleys. But when that sort of civilization and cultivation ceased and we go into the wide open grassland spaces of what is now Kazakhstan and so on, there wasn't much booty, there wasn't much um, incentive to go on into these lands. The fighting was very hard with the local nomads. So in effect, they were quite content to secure their frontiers where the last cities were. Just before the battle, back the year before the battle, the Arab Empire went through the Abbasid Revolution. How did that affect the Arab forces and their and their determination to keep going east? The area of the northeast of the Islamic Empire was quite unusual in the sense that at the time of the original conquest, a lot of Arab Muslims had settled in that area. They'd settled on the frontier rather than in in western Iran and so on. So there was a strong Arab Muslim presence. And by the time of around 750, when we're talking about the coming of the Abbasids, there was a fusion between an Arab leadership and a local Iranian population. And these people rose up in rebellion, essentially, in the year 747 against the Umayyads in Damascus. Uh, armies from northeastern Iran, what they call Khorasan, went west, they conquered Iraq, they conquered Syria, and they conquered Egypt. Uh, in the years immediately before the Battle of Talas, there was a huge explosion of military energy in this part of Central Asia. And the new regime, the Abbasid regime that was established in Baghdad, was essentially dependent on the forces from northeast Iran for its military power and its military. So we're talking about a non-Muslim contingent as well, aren't we? There were some non-Muslim contingents, but overwhelmingly uh, the uh, armies who fought were at least nominally Muslims. They were Iranians and Arabs together in a Muslim army. 
So, Hilda de Vett, what were the Chinese doing there in uh, 751, doing in that part of Asia, Central Asia in 751? Well, there had been some, some prior investment in the air to follow up on your earlier question. So by the late 7th century, the, the Tang Empire had set up protectorates. These are military bases that would allow them to, to maintain a presence. They allowed the locals to rule themselves, but they wanted to be sure to have soldiers in place so that if their influence in the area was challenged, they would be able to respond. Now, by the, around 750, there had been several decades of battles with particularly two uh, forces. The first of those is the Tibetans. Uh, the Tibetans were eager to take over uh, the Tang uh, oasis uh, states, um, and, and they were quite successful from time to time. So between 720 and 740, um, the Tibetans won some battles, the, the, the Tang forces uh, won some battles. But by and large by around 750, the Tang Empire had been successful to withstand the Tibetan onslaught. One battle in particular I want to mention uh, is uh, the one of uh, 746, which was led by the general that would actually lead the Tang forces against uh, the Abbasid forces as well. This is a man in Chinese called Kao Xianzhi. He was actually of Korean descent, so his Korean name is Go Sundi, probably uh, massacring the name somewhat. Um, he had been able to uh, make the Tibetans withdraw, not only, and this is important, at the Terran base, but even from as far as India. So at that point, there was still that drive from the Tang forces to go as far as possible, as, as you were saying earlier. Um, the second uh, major force they had to deal with was a people called the Turgesh. This was a, a Western Turkish people who similarly uh, were also uh, trying to extend their influence over uh, the Terran basin. Similar story, tongue lost some battles, but they were able to um, keep hold their own and, and fight them off. Now, the, the Korean uh, general, in trying to uh, extend uh, Tang influence in the area, got involved in a battle between the rulers of, of two city-states, uh, Fragana uh, and uh, Tashkent, two city-states in what is now uh, Uzbekistan. Um, the Tang uh, did obtain the submission of the king of Tashkent, uh, but they decided to punish him nevertheless. As a result of that, the, uh, the king uh, the, or the crown prince went to the Abbasid and asked for forces to be sent. These were then the forces that uh, they, the Tang would face. What I get from what's going on, uh, Michelle Huckelman, is the extent of these armies roving over vast areas mm -hmm. in Central mm -hmm. Asia. Mm -hmm. you, you casually throw in this state and that state and the other state. And the, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it seems that they were, they were, they were getting a move on. There, there's a feeling of uh, rushing around. There's a feeling of uh, fighting fire, outbreaks of fire, war fire uh, in certain stages. Is that how you see it? Um, well, I mean, was there any sense of a purposeful, coherent movement? I think I think one has to distinguish here between um, the purposes, um, the court uh, associated with the Western expansion, and um, part of the um, uh, intellectual elite um, of that time associated with um, um, this expansion. Um, you get a feeling of. Um, the Tang Empire overstretching itself um, when you look at poetical sources on at other sources outside of, of the historical record um, there's one um, famous poem by um, um, one of the greatest poets um, that ever lived in, in, in Chinese history, Li Bai 
um, which um, Arthur Whaley, who um, 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 is a well-known translator of Chinese literature in, 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 in England, um, um, dated to the year 751, um, to the year of the of the Battle of Talas. And Whaley thought that certain references in that poem um, are referring to the Battle of Talas. And the feeling you get from that bone is... Um, um, what what are our forces doing out there? This is so far outside of our own realm. Um, um, we we don't really have business there. It's a bit like 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 um, um, American or British policy, politics nowadays. What are we doing in the Middle East? So so you get this feeling in 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 um, 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 in Tang Chinese poem and poetry at that time. What other sources are you relying on for this battle? Um, that's um, um, that's that's actually a very interesting question because um, we have basically two kinds of um, um, sources. Um, uh, one are um, the transmitted um, historical or standard standard histories um, of the Tang Dynasty. Um, two um, books which are various, which are usually known as the Old and the New Tang History. Um, and the Battle of Talas is referred to in um, the um, biography of um, that general Gao Xianzhi, Hilda just mentioned. Um, there's only very scarce um, mention of that battle in, in, in those sources, only a few couple of lines. Um, then in another source um, from um, the Song Dynasty, the 11th um, century, the Zizhitongjian, um, we have an, a, a longer account of um, the events that led to the battle. Not that very much on the battle itself. They only um, tell us that, um, okay, the forces met and um, they fought for five days and then the Tang lost. That's basically the information we get from the sources. Um, what we have, we are in the very luxurious position that um, we have um, a text um, written by uh, a name named um, uh, by a man named Du Huan, um, who allegedly uh, was um, captured during the Battle of Talas, um, and um, spent um, some twenty odd years in the western regions in Baghdad. Um, a text named the Jingxing uh, Ji, which just means travel log, um, and that only survives in fragments in a much larger work on institutional history written by one of his relatives uh, a generation after, um, um, a man named Du You. And the um, work, um, the this travel account survives and um, is basically um, interspersed in the sections Du You wrote in his work on the Western regions. Hugh Kennedy, what do we know about the Arab armies at this point, uh, their size and uh, their size will do for a start? Uh, Arab Muslim armies of this era were seldom more than 30,000 people, often much uh, smaller in number. They tended to travel very rapidly on camels and horses to the battles when they actually fought uh, their enemies at this stage. They tended to dismount and fight on foot. And that was the way that uh, conflicts were classically decided. But we don't, of course, have the sort of information for the Battle of Talas that would actually make that clear in this particular case. How were they armed? They were armed with um, swords and spears, coats of mail, uh, metal helmets. Uh, they uh, had archers with them, foot archers, probably, or fighting on foot at, the, at this stage. Was it much the same on both sides, the, the, the armour and the, the, the weapons? 
I would think so. I'd have to ask my Chinese colleagues. Yes, uh, yes, that would be roughly similar. Perhaps the Chinese had fewer horses. I've, I've quote that I've yeah. seen is about yeah. eighty thousand for an army that, that by the mid eighth uh, century would be around five hundred thousand uh, soldiers on the frontiers. Really? So, what, do we know? We, we've, it's been explained very carefully by Michel what we don't know in the fragments and so on but what do we know How, what can you piece together about the Battle of Talos we know it's five days we know it's two armies well, we're we still a bit wobbly, well, vague about the, the numbers involved mm-hmm. but still can you have a shot at it yes uh, the battle took place in July 751 uh, Chinese sources suggest that the uh, Tang force uh, was about 30,000 uh, soldiers 10,000 Tang regular uh, regulars and 20,000 uh, roughly that uh, were allies. These were um, Turk, another Turkish tribe, uh, the Kurgesh, who had agreed to fight with the Tang. This was not an unusual thing to happen. Uh, alliances were easily formed and also easily easily broken. Uh, and this seems to uh, have been what, what happened in this case. Uh, the Chinese put the, the size of the Abbasid force at around 200,000. This is probably more than uh, the Arab sources would admit. Um, what happened is that a couple of days into the battle, this is again according to some Chinese accounts, uh, the uh, Karluk decided to go against their allies and they fought them from the back. Uh, this led to uh, the massacring of the Tang forces. Thousands died. Thousands were taken uh, prisoner, and a few were able to escape. Uh, so, in, just just to, to repeat that, inside the Chinese army, they had mercenaries. A great number of mercenaries switched yes. sides, went behind the Chinese army, and so the Chinese army was being attacked on two fronts. Indeed. Uh, one, one account I read in Arab source which suggests that this was actually all planned ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is uh, not uh, that was not a fortuitous uh, event, but they seem to be agreed that uh, one reason why the Chinese lost had to do with uh, the switching of lines. Can I just come to numbers before I ask you to join in about the battle? Anything else you can throw at it? We're told that 20,000 Chinese prisoners were taken by the Arabs. Now, 20,000 prisoners were taken. Uh, Chinese prisoners. And a lot of Chinese are massacred. And presumably some of them got away. It does suggest uh, an army bigger than 30,000, doesn't it? Well, the, the, the problem, one, one always has to be careful with these numbers in, in battle accounts of that particular period. The yeah. Arab sources um, probably tend to exaggerate the size of the Chinese army and, and underestimate the size of their own army because that makes their, their victory all the more glorious. Um, um, and had the Chinese won, it would probably have been um, the other way around. Um, but the Chinese sources give us um, quite small numbers of, of, of their own forces and much larger numbers for the Arab forces. Well, Hill has mentioned 200,000, and you said it was never much more than 30,000. That's just by comparison, but, but it's always a phenomenon. Everyone overestimates the, the, the forces of the mm-hmm. enemy and, and, and sort of because they know much more about their own forces, they're probably more realistic about the numbers. Yeah, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands is sometimes sort of just an indicator of how big that army would have been, not necessarily an accurate count. Just means very large. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, can you tell us what happened to the Tang dynasty after the battle? I mean, did... They, what happens when you lose in battles like that? Do they officially surrender or do they scoot or what happens? Well, from what we know, um, nothing really happened 
there wasn't really a huge um, 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 outcome of that battle. Um, the Tang um, onslaught into um, um, Western Asia and Central Asia um, didn't just stop with the Battle of Talas. What actually happened is that um, um, the battle is totally overshadowed but by um, what happened um, f four years later, um, uh, an event um, um, uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with, the uh, Andushan Rebellion, which um, uh, threw the Tang dynasty in, in, in utter chaos and, and brought it to the brink of, of total collapse. And that actually stopped um, the Chinese expansion into Central Asia. And then the Tibetans and Uyghurs moved in to fill the void that was created by um, the um, incapability of the Tang to hold their possessions in Central Asia. There were some back and forth um, um, wars fought in the 150 years afterwards. The Tang for a time um, reconquered part of um, what Hilde um, named um, the Gansu Corridor and then it was retaken back by the Tibetans. Um, but it's totally overshadowed by this other major event, this watershed in Chinese history, the Anlushan Rebellion. Hugh Kennedy, what did the, why didn't the Arabs go further east? They'd won. Why didn't they keep pushing on? Because it was inhospitable and unprofitable country, I think. This is a classic <laughs> example of uh, empires, I think, being dragged into conflict by small buffer states on the frontiers. We've, and interestingly, the yes, Chinese indeed. accounts and the, and the only mm -hmm. Arab accounts paint a very similar picture. It's the local kings, one appeals, the king of Fugano appeals to the Chinese, the king of Shash Tashkent appeals to the Arabs, and they sort of drag their imperial allies into a conflict which mm -hmm. possibly neither of the imperial allies had actually wanted in, in, in the first place. It's not a question of clash of empires so much as people being uh, persuaded to support their local vassal states, I think. So you talk, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to get a fix on the significance of this battle. It seems as if they both were drawn into it, stumbled into it, didn't really say, Arabs, we are going to conquer the Chinese, or Chinese, we are going to conquer the Arabs. They happened to meet at this river and had a fight. On the Chinese side, it may be difficult to say. I mean, there are some accounts that this Korean general, Gosonji, who had also been able to flee, uh, was planning revenge. But he got drawn into the Anlushan conflict. So the, the Chinese didn't reappear. It didn't mean that they weren't interested in reappearing at some point, but they just were, forces had to be withdrawn from that area to go fight battles mm -hmm. elsewhere, and others filled the void. Mm -hmm. Can we talk, uh, Michelle, can we talk about the balance of power in Central Asia, how it changed in the following years, after 751? Mm, it um, changed in the way um, I um, already mentioned um, um, before that the Tibetans and Uyghurs uh, oh. were just um, jumping into into the void that was created um, 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 due to the battle of or, uh, due to the um, Andalusian rebellion, um, where the when the Tang forces had to uh, withdraw from. Can Central you just remind Asia. people? You said your our listeners would know. Maybe not all of them would know. Can you just briefly remind us what that rebellion was? It was four um, years later. It was very big and. How powerful effect did it have on the Chinese forces? Well, um, one corollary of what has already been discussed about the Battle of Talas, that um, um, the Tang forces were um, commanded by a Korean general, was actually not a coincidence. There had been um, there had been major developments in within the Tang military. Um, um, way before the Battle of Talas and the Anlushan Rebellion, um, the Tang have moved their 
attention from um, a militia-based uh, military to border defense forces, which were largely uh, made out of conscripts and um, foreign auxiliaries, often um, commanded by um, foreign generals. And one of these generals was uh, a man called An Lushan, um, who was a very um, influential figure, of obviously very um, popular at the court, um, having very good connections to the emperor uh, himself and um, his um, uh, favorite concubine, um, Yang Guifei. Um, and in the year 755, he um, decided to rebel against um, the Tang court and try to establish his own dynasty, the very short-lived um, uh, Yen dynasty, which was then crushed also because the Tang court um, drew in um, some of their Central Asian allies. They actually had to rely on Uyghur forces to retake their capital. So the Chinese pulled back and it began a, period, a very, very extended period of a more isolationist policy altogether. Anyway, whether they intended it is one thing. The fact is they had to deal with people who were forcing them to stay within their own already extensive boundaries. And the Arabs pulled back, Hugh, because they'd gone as far as they wanted to go and they wanted to consolidate half the other world that, that was behind them. And you want to say it's something just, else before you go to Hilde. There's another thing that's going on here, and that is the Anlushan Rebellion, which we've been hearing about, and other forces, meant that the commercial links between uh, Central Asia, uh, Muslim Central Asia and China were essentially ruptured. The Silk Road that had existed in, in, in the early centuries of our era uh, was disrupted, uh, trade shifted between China and the Middle East shifted to the sea route. So the overland route between Central Asia and China was no longer so profitable or so inviting. And so it didn't encourage people to um, explore militarily these remote and desolate areas. Hilda, can, we t can, you, can you tell us how the battle affected the development of religion in China? Yes. The, up till, say, the mid-8th uh, century, the the area that we've been mostly focused on today, Central Asia, had been a thoroughfare for the transmission of Buddhist culture. Buddhist monks, Buddhist texts, Buddhist artifacts traveled from India all the way to uh, Korea and, and Japan. Um, this changed not necessarily only as a result of the battle and the spread of Islamic culture, also because of uh, uh, re the revival of Hinduism in India. India had been the heartland of Buddhist culture, and it was for Buddhist believers uh, across uh, Eurasia the place to visit and the place to watch. That changed as a result of, of the battle and also, as, as he referred to it, the, the cutoff of the land routes. It became more difficult to go there, but it also became less appealing because India no longer, or at least the Buddhist community in India, no longer was a thriving Buddhist community. It had been uh, up till that point. So what happened as a result of that is that instead... Uh, there were a variety of homegrown varieties of, of Buddhism in East Asia that uh, that spread, and China became sort of the focus of attention for uh, East, the East Asian Buddhist world, at least. As far as uh, Islam is concerned, we do see a, a spread of Islamic culture uh, in India and Central Asia, uh, but th it did not happen overnight. Uh, it didn't, it, this did not happen in decades following the battle. It took centuries, uh, as a matter of, of fact. Um, we see um, 
uh, Islamic uh, communities, voluntary conversions mainly, no massive uh, forced conversions. And there's good evidence to show that even though the influence of Buddhism declined, it continued to do fairly well in Central Asia, particularly under the patronage of the Tongods, the, the, the Mongols. Uh, so between the 11th and 14th century, there were still Buddhist communities, but they were no longer so, as influential as they had been. Can we talk about the, uh, the development of Islam in that area, though, Michel? Um, I, if I just may jump in at that, that this point, um, we um, should probably also mention the Manichaeans, um, 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 because the, the Uyghurs, um, um, which had been major Tang allies, um, they were Manichaeans at that point. The Uyghurs, which are um, a so-called national minority in, in, in uh, Western China nowadays, and which we normally perceive as being Muslims, only converted to Islam, like many of, of um, the Central Asian um, people um, in the centuries after after um, the um, Battle of Talas. And it's very, very interesting um, when you look at one of the major events in religious history in the mid-9th century, um, the great Huichang proscription of foreign religions, that the official sources, they mention um, Buddhism, they mention Manichaeism, they mention Zoroastrianism, they even mention Christianity, but they don't mention Islam. Um, however, the Jingxingji um, uh, of Du Huan, um, that guy who allegedly had been captured by um, the Arab forces, um, he actually gives an um, account of um, what he saw in Baghdad and mentions um, um, some of the customs which um, prove that he must have, at least even if he hadn't known him, seen it himself, he must have known something about Islam. He mentions that women have to cover their faces and he mentions that they worship heaven five times a day. Sure, can you give us a bit of an overview as we come to the end of the program as to, to what a settlement about over the next century or so, what these two who had their haven't had a war since. <laughs> yeah. What they were, what, what, which they were moving into their heartlands. Both of them. Is that right? Can you develop? Yes, that? Uh, certainly. From the Muslim side, there's a certain retrenchment, if you like, and the the commerce and the, the commercial activity of Central Asia, Muslim Central Asia becomes redirected to Baghdad and to the, even to the Mediterranean world, and the the, the uh, direct links with China are cut off, and. Um, but there are, there, are, there are still consequences. This is, um, this is where the paper story comes into. Yeah. Well, let's the, have the paper story. <laughs> as it was according, <laughs> according to the Arab Muslim sources, uh, the uh, introduction of paper to the Middle East, which is of, of fundamental importance in spreading literacy and, and, and uh, written culture and so on, occurred because Chinese prisoners captured at the Battle of Talas or around that time were then transported to Iraq, first to Central Asia, to Samarkand, and then to Iraq, and brought this new technology with them. Now, uh, this sort of story seems too simple in a way, and historians are, are, are distrustful of this sort of thing, but it has a certain credibility because we know that paper began to be manufactured on a large scale in Iraq in the second half of the 8th century, precisely the moment when we'd expect this uh, this to be happening. And the tradition is, a, is an old one in the Arab Muslim literature, and I see no reason why it should have been invented. But, but there was, again... 
There's a great lining to this 500-year blossoming of the, of the Golden Age. Wasn't exactly. It? Paper. Without paper, <laughs> without the importation of paper, the Golden Age of Abbasid culture is inconceivable. Yeah, two points. I, I'm less uh, convinced by, by the story, in part because well, it's definitely a good story. I, I love it too, and there are similar stories like it about the, the transmission of technology. But I've, it, it, it is clear that between the 3rd and 5th century, Paper was already in wide use in Central Asia. We've, we found many archaeological caches of, of paper documents. Now, of course, finding them doesn't necessarily mean they were produced there, but uh, because the uh, paper that is found in that area is also different from Chinese papers, it's quite likely that actually paper was also made. The technology itself is actually quite simple. Uh, this is You don't need to capture experts to, to manufacture paper. You, you throw some rags together with some fibers, you get a pulp, you uh, lift the paper out of it, it was used for all sorts of things, not just for writing, but also for wrapping, in daily use, cards, and so forth. So it's quite likely that it was already a widely dispersed technology. And there may have been others who were responsible for transmitting the technology at that point. But there was this great rush of, of use of paper in Baghdad in the second half of the 8th century. There was suddenly this great rush. Is that mm -hmm. not a factor in your thinking about it, Michelle? No, uh, another possible explanation. Yeah, we have to move, get a bit of because he's got. Um, my, 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 you, you're asking for my personal opinion. Yeah, I am. The, That's the, exactly the, the, what the I'm doing. Paper transmission, the paper transmission. So I'm, I'm probably as reluctant as Hilda to believe in that story because um, I, I thought I, I thought a lot about this in in preparation for this program and 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 um, I was also wondering where this story actually sprang from and and um, since since you mentioned that um, it's an old tradition in Arab sources I'm not entirely sure where it comes from in China um, and I think I think there are some and I, I still as yet have to see um, um, uh, a reference to that story in, in Chinese sources. I haven't seen there it. There isn't any. I, I think it comes mostly yeah. from slightly later Arab historiography. And there were families also moving from Balkh, what is now Afghanistan, into Baghdad around the time, families that would have been used to using paper in that area. So there are some other <laughs> explanations. Mm. Well, it's a pincer movement there, Hugh, one on either side, <laughs> saying, no, you're, you're on your own now. I still like the story. <laughs> <laughs> Liking it isn't enough for scholars <laughs> like you. No, it makes sense plausibly. I mean, there certainly was paper, as, as, as Hilda's been saying, in use in Central Asia, but there was no record of any paper being in, in, in Iraq, Syria, any of the Central Islamic lands before the Battle of Talas. After there is. And that, that's as far as we can go. We well, don't have any sort of smoking guns or whatever, or well, any individuals we can point to. as far as we have time to go. So thank you very much indeed, Hugh Kennedy, Hilda de Wirt, Michelle Huckelman. Next week, we'll be talking about Rudyard Kipling. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Definitely, definitely. It's a great yeah, account. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although it, it did itself, um, I, the question it, in itself doesn't seem to be, I don't know how to put this, doesn't seem to be a significant battle event. It, it had significance, didn't it, in terms of how how we can look at the development of the well, two forces from then on. We were doing the Battle of Poitiers some time ago, and that has very much the same significance. We know almost nothing about the battle itself, and yet it represents a sort of high watermark or a turning point or whatever in quite a distinct way. Yeah. My pitch for its significance would have come with the switch to the sea routes. That one, it's a slightly mm -hmm. uh, exaggerated claim, but I, I think perhaps not mm -hmm. entirely so in that the switch to the sea routes meant that over the next couple of centuries there, there was an increasing <coughs> exchange of goods and people between 
the South Chinese coast and you know, the West Asia, <coughs> but also the Mediterranean. And in some ways, I mean, the, the bringing together of these uh, economic systems in Europe, in West Asia, in South Asia, in East Asia, lays the foundations for the early modern and later the modern uh, world economy. So in some ways, you know, that's that's its largest significance, I think. It's economic rather than uh, anything else. Just to catch, <coughs> catch up on that, um, um, uh, I, I wouldn't say that um, um, the um, Chinese only switched to the sea routes after um, the Anlushan Rebellion. I mean, the sea routes have been very important, um, for, had been very important for centuries, even before um, um, the uh, land routes were, were, were cut off. Um, the, the, the oldest um, still existing mosque in China is not in northern China, it's in Guangzhou. No, no, there definitely it, were, but the increase, but if you look between the 11th and 14th century, they're entirely there, whereas before certainly. they were also in China. Certainly, but just what I, what I want to point out is that people um, sometimes claim or very often claim that Buddhism also came um, um, uh, over the Silk Roads and, and over the land roads, which um, isn't the whole picture because um, uh, Buddhism had also traveled mm. um, via the South China Sea for centuries. Mm. Is there um, any, uh, do you do any of you have any sense that there are more documents waiting to be found, or do you think you've got everything you're going to get? Quite possible. Maybe documents, uh, but also stone steles. And for example, one of the, the communities that are there, Arab, Jewish, Indian, even Italian, you know, by, by the 13th, 14th centuries, that comes because somebody digs up a stone. Mm -hmm. and, you, know, <laughs> you find that there's uh, Francesca so-and-so from you know, in, in Hangzhou. Um, so, unfortunately, because these are also the most densely populated parts of China, mm -hmm. it's very hard to dig. So, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if you know they do some major construction work somewhere. They still still find things. Yes, uh, yes. And then mm -hmm. recently, historic documents have appeared from the Ali Abbasid period in northeastern Iran, uh, written on leather, and so we don't know exactly where they come from because they float onto the antique market but they're clearly northeastern Iranian they clearly date from the early Islamic uh, the early Abbasid period um, and there may be many more of them but we you know, maybe really tomorrow find. we'll open the newspaper and well, find out finding coins in the city of London when they build a new skyscraper <laughs> exactly. here's Tom here's Tom Tom Morris and would you like a cup of tea there are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4. With so many new podcasts, how do you find your next obsession? Try Pocket Casts, the free podcast app designed by listeners for listeners. With curated recommendations, discovery is easy and seamless. When you find something you like, just hit play. Find all your favorite shows, old and new, at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. 